1: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: On today's show, comedian, author, talk show host, and great gay mind, Guy Branham. Branham discusses his support of former mayor and incoming transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg.
3: And now... The boys with fun accessories in Brooklyn like to scoff at the assimilationist identity of a Mr. a a Mayor Buttigieg, soon to be Secretary Buttigieg. But like a fucking place at the table was not there for a very long time. And if some of the boys overcorrected in their attempt to get a place at the table, boys or girls, I understand why. Recognizing himself in queer media. There were things that came out that it took me time to be able to appreciate because they were too much when I was in the closet. Like, that first season of Will & Grace, I was like, this is so glib, this is so arch, I'm not like that. And the thing is, I am like that. I had to, like, get through it. What passes for body positivity within the gay community? So much the language of body positivity is being used by hot people to get more people to tell them how hot they are and to create sort of like a shawl of humility to place over the fact that you are saying essentially, look at how hot I am. Please envy me and want to have sex with me. And his thoughts on the barrage of gay men who attended a recent circuit party in Puerto Vallarta during a global pandemic. We follow those people for being hot and going to Mykonos. And then we're asking why they are continuing to be hot and go to Mykonos when being hot and going to Mykonos is putting everyone's life in danger. Everyone's life, everyone's income, our world is falling apart. Please take nothing I'm saying as an implication that all of those people who went to Puerto Vallarta weren't terrible and irresponsible. But it's like so layered because I understand why they did it. And then I also understand on a deeper layer why they're doing it. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Evan, will you shut up? Shut the fuck up, Evan.
2: Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I am Evan Ross Katz, and I am joined once again by my producer, Matt, aka Stormageddon. Matt, 2021, here at last, how are you feeling?
4: You know, I'll be honest, I was hoping a little less 2020 in my 2021, and yet Mm. here we are uh, with coups and bullshit, and you know, I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't expect it to just go away in the turnover of the air but i thought maybe we'd get a couple weeks
2: (laughs) well we did get a few hours after the warnock and ossoff win um before the the coup began in which we we were able to celebrate what felt like a victory
4: yeah um but that said otherwise i'm doing the best that i can you know uh i finally have and hooked up and this is a small victory for me but i'll take them where i can get them i have my ps5 um i've been playing some new games which have been great um and getting through a backlog of old games uh it's been like my way to relax like i used to because i have a couple gaming podcasts i had in my brain for a while like i have to play video games so i could tweet about them and so i can like talk about them and like there are a few games now that i have that i'm just like nope i'm just gonna play these games maybe share a screenshot and not talk about anything and just like enjoy the thing and so that's been really nice to kind of go back to I'm sure you feel this way with drag race and stuff sometimes like you can't just enjoy stuff you have to like share your thoughts and so it's nice to just come back to something I love and just be like hey I'm gonna chill and just enjoy this thing totally (laughs) how are you doing
2: I'm good. I, uh, I'm i prepping two big uh, events, uh, seismic events in, in my life uh, for next week and the week after. So uh, by the time this episode comes out that evening, so Tuesday evening, I will be making my late night television debut as a guest on Watch What Happens Live, which Yay. is like... I was going to say it's a dream come true. It's not even something I conceived to dream up just because (laughs) I've never, uh, it just was never something that crossed my mind. I thought maybe one day I would be a guest bartender on the show promoting, you know, my book or something down the line. That felt attainable. This is very surreal. I'm very honored. I am going to choose excitement, not nervousness. Um, And so we'll see how things go. My goal so there's some accountability. My goal is to be pithy. I do not want to be long-winded, <laughs> as I am wont to be. So that is that is um, in my immediate pipeline, and then I am prepping for my interview with Sarah Michelle Gellar for the Buffy book, and that is obviously tremendously exciting. But it's just requiring a lot of research because I don't want to ask her things that she's been asked about before. Right. And as she warned me, and I'm very well aware of her memory with regards to the experience of Buffy is a little less strong. So I don't want to muddy the interview by being like, do you remember what you were feeling on this day? Blah, blah, blah. Cause I don't think I'll get a lot of there there. So I just want to be really strategic and take advantage of, our banter um, yeah. and, and hope to get the best out of her. But I'm so excited about that. She has not done a Buffy-centric interview since the 20th anniversary of the show in 2017. So it's fun, just like another couple years have passed. And uh, I'm honored that she said yes, I really am.
4: That's amazing. I, I'm very excited for that. I I just, it's fun to see a friend's dream come to fruition. We don't always get to see that, and this is one of those dreams, and so it's really cool to see that. Before we get into some headlines that I know you are going to have thoughts on, um, maybe we should talk about where we've been for the last few weeks, just real quick.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we should. Um, So being uh, as transparent as we can be, we had an episode prepped for two weeks ago that was all ready to go, and the guest was in the middle of a bit of some backlash over something that they had done and asked if we would hold the episode and out of respect for our guest and feeling like the timing just didn't feel right, we decided to pull the episode. It will probably air later on in the season, but I think for me, it was one of those moments I felt, and you know this, Matt, I felt very nervous about the episode leading up to it because it just didn't feel, we had taped it a while back and it, it felt it had gotten really stale really quickly. And, as soon as the guest mentioned that they were not feeling great about it, it became immediately clear that we needed to pull the episode and so, in my like brain that likes you know like orderliness, I was like, oh my god, we're gonna have, like we we don't have a backup episode, blah, blah blah." In the scheme of things, what matters is the mental health of anyone who is you know, involved in this podcast in any way. So happily, we made the decision to put that episode over ice. But just for those wondering, yes, that is a little bit of the behind the scenes. And hopefully now we will be back on our every two week schedule moving forward. So, yeah, that's that's what happened there.
4: Yeah, a little inside baseball. Typically, podcasts will try and bank episodes and record way before they actually air, just so we can have some stuff in the chamber, as it were. Unfortunately, with this one, we didn't. And so it just gummed up the works a little bit. But again, like Evan said, and I completely agree, I too was nervous, and I think the mental health of a guest being on the show, as well as our peace of mind for this show that we're trying to bring to you and entertain you, and uh, this was a decision we made as a group that just made sense. So yeah, but uh, we're back. And uh, so Evan, uh, there's totally nothing been going on in the news, right? Nothing is going no, no, on, quite no quite headlines. Week. Yeah. Quite yeah. week. <laughs> Why don't we talk a little bit about some of the stuff that's been going on?
2: Well, for those uh, *Sex in the City* lovers out there, those little Carrie heads, Miranda heads, and Charlotte heads, Samantha heads, I feel you. Uh, but basically, <laughs> it was announced uh, just last week that or, that we would be getting the. I was gonna say long awaited, but I don't know if that's the correct way to describe it, because I don't know if this is necessarily what we knew we'd be getting. But anyway, Sex and the City is coming back. It's being called a reboot, but that's actually not correct. It's more kind of like a continuation of the show. Um, I am curious if they will be picking up with the series or with the films. I feel like they have to pick up with the films, but that leaves them in a rather strange place because the last film, Sex and the City 2, which came out in 2010, was Pretty critically reviled. Um, But the one thing that I've been really like pondering with this announcement, which I am both like... I absolutely do not want to see Sex and the City back on my screen, and I absolutely will be watching and loving every minute of it. It can be both. Um, But I've been wondering sort of like who this new Sex and the City is for. And so I did a story uh, that's coming out about that, and I spoke to Chelsea Fairless and Lauren Geroni, and they are the co-founders of Every Outfit SATC. It's an Instagram account that if you're not following, I really think that it is one of my favorite uh, creative ways in which fandom can exist. Um, It's not just kind of like the we stand. we love her like yes slay kind of fandom it's more um they're really creative in sort of how they take what they love about the show and funnel it through um their brains and sort of create new content around the show or just like they're kind of like historians of sex i mean they are they're historians of sex in the city much as like i try to be a historian about buffy the vampire slayer and so Mm -hmm. i think historian to historian there's a lot of love there so i spoke to the both of them and one thing that lauren said that i thought was pretty interesting is she said quote we've been primed as viewers to voraciously consume the sex lives of men puzzle women on the Upper East Side through the Real Housewives of New York. So I think stands like us will enjoy the new limited series and regardless, it will attract a new audience as long as they are Bravo reality television fans, which I thought was a really interesting caveat. And Chelsea added, if the film taught us anything, quote, it's that this franchise is now about appealing to the masses, even though the second film appealed to virtually no one. I hope that they gear the reboot towards its original audience. We don't really need a TV show about women in their 50s that panders to Gen Z. And I think that that is really interesting Um, In terms of what we will see, because I think this show, not that it has to pander to a specific audience, but it does need to make a choice in sort of how, who it wants to be for, which is not to say that it, it, I kind of don't think it can be for everyone. I kind of don't think it can be for everyone. So we will be tuning in. Allegedly production is going to begin this spring. Um, We are in the middle of a global pandemic. Why they chose to hit the green light now of all times can't really say, but like I said, conflicted emotions, but leaning towards the, you know, I love my girls, and even though we're only getting three of the four back, I am quite excited, despite my disappointment that Kim Cattrall did not come through in the end and decide to be a part of this. But you know what? That is her will, and it shall be done. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on really quickly, because I've gotten a lot of DMs about this, is the Army Hammer drama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So basically, the very, very short version is that earlier this month, an anonymous Instagram account called House of Effie began posting what appears to be Instagram DMs with Hammer. The messages that they've posted screenshots of are quite explicit and kinky in nature and describe a master-slave relationship between the two. In one message, he says, allegedly, quote, I am 100% a cannibal. I wanna eat you. Fuck, that's scary to admit. I've never admitted that before. And there's been a lot of discourse online, I think, Army Hammer is someone that people like to dislike. There's a lot of pleasure to be taken in disliking him, akin to conversations we've had about Ellen or Chris Pratt. Army Hammer just seems like someone of great privilege who has been granted a lot, a lot of opportunities in life because of said privilege, and therefore it's kind of fun to to poke fun at him. These allegations are incredibly disturbing, um, but I the reason I hold out sort of any strong take or or even strong opinion about this is that this has not been reported out those screenshots could easily have been manipulated or created out of thin air. I'm not saying they were. I'm also not saying they're not. I don't think there's enough information here to have a substantive conversation about it. I think that Army Hammer decided to drop out of his upcoming film with Jennifer Lopez, um, citing these messages that have become public. Citing that as a reason does indicate that there is some sort of there, there, because he's not taking the ignore it approach. Um, But I am eager to keep following this story. But for those interested, I mean, it definitely is worth um, checking out sort of the various stories that have been written. But like I said, I'm eager for this to be reported out. Um, So yeah, those are the two big topics I want to touch on. But before we get to the big interview, I think we both wanted to have a a mini discussion about um, a little Instagram account that is uh, making a pretty loud splash on the interwebs. It's not only the interwebs, is it? It's on social media. And that is this account, Gaze Over COVID. Um, Matt, are you familiar with Gaze Over COVID?
4: Yes, I am familiar with Gaze Over COVID. I uh, I am trying to not, I'm trying to rein in my unbridled rage. I guess is what I'll say. Um, I just, I've lost people to COVID. People I know, people close to me, and so anything that is publicly, like we're all over COVID. We get it. Like we're all over it. We don't want, we don't want to be home as much as you don't want to be home. But this account it just makes me angry uh i don't and i don't know what else to say about it i mean i mean there's so much more to say about it but i think for me personally i'm just i'm just so angry at the irresponsibility of something like this
2: so wait just so i'm clear you are you're angry at the the people that Gaze Over COVID is exposing, or you are angry at gays Over COVID for exposing them? Just because I think we need some clarity.
4: Oh, sure. So I'm more angry that people are still doing stupid shit. Gaze Over COVID and, like, exposing people who are doing stupid shit, of course, like, I am all for. I am just frustrated with the people mm. who are still going out in a pandemic, are still partying, are still doing living their normal lives while people are dying like that's the anger and unbridled rage and gaze over covid is bringing all of that to light and so you know my feelings are just kind of a whirlwind around it you know of course i want to expose these morons who are doing stupid stuff publicly when they shouldn't be at this point but at the same time it's like why are we still why are we still this far into a pandemic going out partying deciding that we're done when the pandemic's not done you know
2: absolutely and so for a little bit of context here gays over covid and there and you know there are several other accounts in the same vein um one is called the la basics but they're basically a slew of social media accounts which have popped up with the sole intent of outing members of the gay community who are not compliant with covid restrictions these people are not wearing masks they're not social distancing they're out and about and in blissful ignorance to the world around them The account, I know for specifically with Gaze Over COVID, it analyzes Facebook location data, Venmo payments, and even releases boots on the ground reporting, which is especially interesting in that it begs the question of why the person filming this and ostensibly trying to out someone is in fact participating in the same dangerous behavior. But that's neither here nor there. You know, I think there is a very legitimate argument to be hashed out over the legitimacy of shaming as a tactic. And it's yeah. something that has uh, generated a lot of discussion online with many people seeming to take a hardline approach, which is either shaming good or shaming bad. Right. I'm not a proponent of shaming. However, I am a proponent of actions that could be construed as shaming and thus some nuance. I find it comforting uh, in a way to channel my own anxiety about the pandemic into frustration, that yeah. is my own form of catharsis i'm angry at these people, yes, but when I post about them, and again i 'm only speaking for me when I post about them, it's more out of frustration than it is anger, and I think right. that's important to sort of uh, to understand. I'm frustrated seeing friends of mine making or strangers making stupid choices that endanger their lives and the lives of and the lives of others. I also understand the desire to move past this pandemic, to put it in the rear view and to get on with life. I don't condone what they're doing, but I can't feign surprise or pretend that I don't understand the underlying desire because I too share it. And so I think that that to me is an, an interesting aspect of this conversation in that there seems to be a lot of pointing and laughing and you know what? I like that. I'm all for the pointing and laughing. Mm-hmm. After we're done pointing and laughing, I think there is a little something under the windshield to uncover about It's not one or two people we're seeing. It's lots of people. And I know for a lot of people listening to this podcast, some of you might be those people. Some of you might be close friends with these people. This doesn't feel, you know, like, oh, we're just seeing these headlines for a lot of us. And as you mentioned, there are people that have many of us listening that have been directly impacted by COVID. And so. I know I'm in the situation where I know gays in Puerto Vallarta and I know people who have lost their lives to COVID and I'm angry about both um, and that's sad. I wanted to read a quote from the Alliance for Justice press secretary, Zach Ford, who did this really fabulous thread on Twitter about this. Um, and he said, "quote I think it's reasonable to hold people accountable for needlessly endangering others, but perhaps especially when their capital is attention, admiration, and popularity. Maybe being hot shouldn't give you a pass to be a shitty human. That seems like a fair proposition. And I think this points to A lot of people's frustration, which is not only the choice to go to these places like Puerto Vallarta. And let's just say Puerto Vallarta is not the only place where large gatherings are happening. Um, But I think it's this idea, the comfort, ease, and desire from some to show off the fact that they are there. I think that is also alarming in that you start to see we have created this culture, this culture in which it's very cnbc and be seen through, you know, platforms like Instagram. You know, here's where I am, here's who I am with. Check out my enviable lifestyle. And this pandemic is all about stay at home, don't do nothing. And I think for a lot of people whose identity it is wrapped up in feeling like they want to show off a certain kind of lifestyle that they either have or want to feign that they have. This is difficult. It it makes them question their own identity. Again, not defending them. But I kind of wanted to like, land the plane somewhere in the conversation, because I think that there's a lot of it's even being called a gay civil war by some which sigh. Um, (laughs) But but this to say that I think there's a lot of derision within the gay community about gays over COVID. But kind of like the bigger questions that this account kind of uh, brings forward. And so my hope is that this invites more conversations amongst us, those who would never in their life attend a circuit party, those who would attend a circuit, circuit party, just not amidst the pandemic, those who considered it but ultimately decided to be smarter, those who chose to go and now regret it, and those who went and see nothing wrong with it. I would love to have Trinity the Tuck or Shangela Laquifa Wadley or Vanessa Vanjie Mateo or Silky Nutmeg Ganache or any of these people who have been outed by gays over COVID. I would love to have them on this podcast and in discussion. I am saddened that certain friends of mine have blocked me or or cut me out of their life for what they see as me bullying them. And you know what? Perhaps there are ways in which it's like, hey, sis, Why couldn't you just message me and tell me how you feel? But my response is, hey sis, why did you have to let all of your followers know about your reckless behavior? Because it's not as though I took private information about a friend and put it out there. I chose to comment on public information about public figures who I have friendly relationships with. And I think that's the part of it though, in terms of like, well, okay, where do we go with this? Which is like, I would love to have a conversation with any of these people. I will do my due diligence in reaching out and trying to get one of them on here. But I don't think the conversation ends with, you're an idiot fuck you. I don't feel that way at all. I feel like the question is, there's got to be something deeper here, a bigger conversation about why a subsection of the LGBTQ plus community seems willing to risk their lives and the lives of others for a good time. And I bet you in that conversation, there is a thread that will take us back through gay history. And that is a conversation I am way more interested in having. I don't hope to continue following gays over COVID because I think at some point it starts to drive you mad when it's not just one party, right? right? It's not like, oh, they went to Puerto Vallarta and now we're shaming them, done. This behavior will continue. The shaming of it will incite more people to do it because that is the culture we live in, right? Yep. Um. And so my only hope, I'm not hoping for togetherness. That's not what I'm trying to preach here. But I am hoping that we can take the approach more to try and understand because I would like to think there are a lot of people who went down to these places that went on these vacations that just weren't using their brain and and that brain is there and just needs a wake-up call. I do not think all of these people have worms for brains. I think that there is a gradient. And I am interested in talking to the people who might have gone, who might now realize after the public shaming or just through their own personal coming to that... Um, This is a serious matter and that the health implications go beyond personal health and that they put, by attending these parties or not even the parties, by just not complying with the rules that have been set forth by the CDC, we are putting others in danger. And I am disappointed at the lack of prioritization of these people's health and and their lack of concern for the health of others. Surprised, I am
3: not.
4: Yeah, I think that at the end of the day, the ignorance, people who are just stupid, I can ignore because they're stupid. You can't reach them. Like they just don't care, but it's when you're when it's selfishness or privilege, that's where there can be a conversation, but it also it makes me sadder because that means that you just care so little about the lives of others and only about your own life. And that even if it's and just because that happens in a moment doesn't mean you can't come back from that, right? Just like the conversations about racism, just because you're racist in a moment doesn't mean you're racist forever. Making a stupid mistake doesn't make you stupid forever. But if we don't have conversations about it, there might not be a come to Jesus moment. There might not be a moment where you realize your mistake. And public shaming has been a way to get people to like wake up and realize, oh, Myself included, like, oh, I did something really stupid. I didn't even realize it, you know? And it's sometimes good or bad. I don't know that I want to speak to that, but it is something that is very much ingrained in social media society of calling people out for these mistakes that they've made. It's just part of the vernacular now.
2: Yeah, and I think, and and we get into this in the conversation with Guy, but I think that all of this stuff that's happening, it requires some workshopping in terms of our own excavating our own immediate reaction to it mm-hmm. our own ability to you know generate empathy towards others our desire to understand those within our community whose whose beliefs don't align with ours I mean and then also what you spoke of too which is the privilege the the implicit privilege of being able to go to Puerto vallarta and put all of this out of your head yeah and so I think one of the great things about this conversation with guy is and he says this but it's like in getting Getting to have a conversation that's not in the comment section of social media and oftentimes, you know, dialoguing with, a, you know, a headless torso or, or someone without, you know, even a picture of themselves in being able to have these conversations i think the the nuance that's needed is able to come out just by having more of a back and forth and also being willing to say i feel this way about it now and my opinion it can evolve i think like one thing that makes me disappointed about all of this is the lack of conversation that's happening now i've seen a lot of essays and things on websites about it and those are good and fine but I think conversation is key. And I think not for nothing, because of the global pandemic we are in, having these conversations is that much more challenging. And so, wow, it's just like challenges on top of challenges. But anyway, I, I look forward to having more conversations, less about gays over COVID, hopefully, but more just about in uh, some of the underlying stuff that's at the core of this that I think is really meaty. And a lot of that we are going to get to in today's interview. Before I throw it over there, I. Do did just want to mention, Matt was not present for this week's interview. And so Ryan, our associate producer is present. So when you hear a third voice on this podcast, and you say that doesn't sound like Matt, that is because (laughs) that is the voice of the fabulous Ryan, who does a lot for this podcast. And is just not vocalized because he does so much of that behind the scenes magic stuff of which uh, I couldn't even uh, comprehend. (laughs) Um, But I'm grateful for. Uh, But so Matt, anything else you want to add?
4: No, I think you covered it.
2: Great. Without any further ado, I am very excited uh, to get the perspective of my friend and fabulous human being, Guy Branum. He is a comedian, author, and talk show host whose screen credits include hosting HBO Max's talk show The Game Show, as well as his recurring segment No More Mr. Nice Gay on Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell, and as staff homosexual on Chelsea Lately. His other television credits include At Midnight, The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, The Meltdown with Jonah and Kumail, Road to Roast, and Debate Wars. As a TV writer, he spent three seasons writing for Hulu's The Mindy Project and was a producer during the show's last season. Additional writing credits include punk Awkward, Another Period, Billy on the Street, and E's Fashion Police. He is also a writer on the upcoming Amazon Prime series adaptation of A League of Their Own. His memoir, My Life as a Goddess, a collection of personal essays, was released in 2018. Comedian Tiffany Haddish called the book, quote, smart, fast, clever, and funny as fuck. He is just that, clever, biting, introspective, incisive, and quick-witted. He also, to borrow another term from Haddish, is funny as fuck. He is the great Guy Branum. Guy,
3: thank you so much for being here. How are you? Thank you for having me. It's very exciting to be here. It's always fun to have social interactions during this time of solitude.
2: (laughs) I concur. Tell me, how have the last,
3: we're nearing 12 months now, how have the last 12 months
2: of quarantine and COVID living, how have they been for you?
3: I mean, it's horrifying. We're going to be unpacking this for years if we don't die. Like, there are so many things that I never would have expected to get that I got, like I was able to go up to my mom raises my niece and I got to go up two times for like a month at a time and like have this quality time with my niece that she's like, get it. You know, I was going to go to college when people can go to college again. And so I've like gotten that and like calm and stability, but also this is turning me terribly middle-aged. Will I ever want to go like be adventuresome again? I don't know. You know, it's, terrifying and weird there's also like I haven't done stand-up for a year now but also my life is just so I've been very very lucky to, to keep having writing jobs but it's like well I just want to be boring and not want to be a performer anymore well uh, you know and then you layer on top of that like Uh, us asking huge political questions about our very existence is all a lot and very scary. It truly is. I want to start by going back
2: to your early life. In rereading your book not too long ago, I was struck by how much change you've witnessed in your lifetime with regards to the gay community. As you mentioned, for instance, you grew up in a world in which gay sex was illegal in a lot of states, and you are still quite young. What are some aspects of otherness that
3: you felt back then
2: that still stick with you today?
3: I mean, you know, it's really hard. It was very sweet of you to say I'm still quite young because otherwise I would be obliged to say thank you for calling me old. But, (laughs) you know, that's, you want to know what being old means? It means you've survived. You know, I, I think it's just hard now to really wrap our heads around how much gayness was sort of unthinkable, something that you weren't allowed to like talk about or, or sort of address. And, and there's the fact that like, it, it had been alienated from society for all of time in so many ways, but in 83 you have the AIDS crisis really coming out and America getting even more scared and more politicized about, you know, trying to to hide homosexuality. And then also you know, this really sort of transformative thing of, for the first time in history, being a gay man became visible in this very interesting but very terrifying way as people got symptoms of, you know, an active HIV infection. And, you know, it did really sharply change the way we looked at things. You know, the fact that not so long ago, it was taken as red that every politician had to say how gross gayness was and how they didn't believe in gay marriage, that we were... Systematically excluded from discourse, I think, is really important. And now, the boys with fun accessories in Brooklyn like to scoff at the assimilationist identity of a Mister, a Mayor Buttigieg, soon to be Secretary Buttigieg. But like, a fucking place at the table was not there for a very long time. And if some of the boys overcorrected in their attempt to get a place at the table, boys or girls. I understand why, you know? What is it like for you to see young people making those criticisms of Mayor Pete? It's very hard because if I say anything about it, they're going to call me old and a centrist and this and that, which fine. But it's also like, they're not wrong. There are a lot of fights on a lot of fronts. Like, should we be able to be sexual? Should we be able to be outside of the boundaries of what, conventional heterosexual, like, cis-normative, like, relationships are, fuck yes. And I want all of those things. But if you also understand, like, that they were saying they're gross sex monsters for the past 2,000 years, you understand why some people are doing some work to be like, I'm not a sex monster. When I will come for you is when people are saying too much, I'm a normal, not like those sex monsters like, you know, the, the thing that bothered me most about the Buttigieg presidential campaign was when they had a go-go-boy poll taken out of a bar in Rhode Island. And I was like, fuck no, they are our leaders. <laughs> like, like you you don't get to be... <laughs> A part of our community and talk shit about bartenders, porn stars, drag queens. You can have individual beefs with personal ones, but as icons, as shaman, you have to understand these are our spaces. This is where we organize. Like it has to be fun at the end of the day. I have I have more problem. Here's the thing: like, a lot of those Brooklyn boys who are talking shit at Buddha Judge, fucking Loved looking. And I understand that looking probably came for them at a point early in their lives when, like, an aspirational sort of like, oh, th- those people are cool and they're gay somehow meant something to them. But those boys never had fun. And I do fundamentally believe that being a gay man needs to feel fun at the end of the day. Otherwise, why are we in the business? What are we doing this for? Should I now just directly pivot to my problems with the stage play, The Inheritance? Please. Look, anytime. Fuck that play. <laughs> fuck that play. And I'm so glad that America's response to that play was fuck that play. But anything that at the end of the day is saying, well, gay guys are fine because they have children. And those, like... They, it's like that that play rested like, the redeeming qualities of gay masculinity on our capacity to kind of have and raise children pissed me off so much. We should be able to have children. We should be able to raise children. That's not what makes gay guys great. We don't have uteruses. It requires, like, actually, no, that is not remotely true, but don't cut that out. Leave that in. Let the, uh, let the trans gay men come for me in their way. Uh, (laughs) But, like, some of us have uteruses. We generally do not. Like accidentally make babies in our relationships, what gay men have to offer is something infinitely more magical and subtle than just more people.
2: Mm. You mentioned looking earlier and even the inheritance, and I imagine there are a crop of young people that saw that stage play or that television series and felt seen. I'm curious, what was the earliest example that you can remember of seeing a piece of art, film, television, theater, what have you, where you said,
3: this is, this is a three-dimensional view of gay existence, this feels deeper. The thing is, is, I didn't come out until I was 23. So a lot of these things were things that I was exposed to before I came out and things that really made it possible for me to come out. When I saw PBS Tales of the City, I was, like, in high school, I think. And it, like, came on... P- we didn't have cable. It came on PBS, which was broadcast television. Like, there are only five channels we can get. And one of them is telling about this, like, you know, furry gay guy with a nice ass who's going to go be in an underwear competition. I only recently discovered that the actor who played Michael Mouse was not gay, and that made me very sad. But, like, that... <laughs> meant a lot. And, like, there were things that came out that it took me time to be able to appreciate because they were too much when I was in the closet. Like, that first season of Will and Grace, I was like, this is so glib. This is so arch. I'm not like that. And the thing is, is I am like that. I had to, like, get through it. Or, you know, it's very funny, like, when I hear younger people who really love looking or the inheritance and feel represented by it. I have to remember the ways that older gays really sort of like were uncomfortable with like the the birdcage and were like, oh no, 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 this is too campy. This is ridiculous. Where I think it is a perfect thing. Like I think that the birdcage represents a queer family in a magnificent way like that says these are people who raised a child what's important about them is not primarily that they raised a child it's that they're amazing I remember the first time I read your book the biggest takeaway I
2: had was hearing about your relationship with your father Uh can you talk to me about your relationship how the two of you came to is accept
3: each other the right word I don't know um my like my dad was a construction worker he, you know, no one in my hometown had gone to college except for like teachers, and we didn't know those people socially. Like everyone around me either worked in agriculture or construction work. And for my dad, you know, m- like masculinity of that sort really meant a lot to him. And me being so intellectual and so faggoty from a very young age made him really uncomfortable and really embarrassed. And so, there was a lot of tension there, but, you know, I I think we came to understand each other as time went on. A lot of it was like, we weren't in each other's faces as much. We weren't constantly having to deal with each other, which gave us the space to appreciate each other. And I also think my dad just grew up to a point because my parents were also like they were 19 when they had my sister they were 24 when they had me it's horrifying to think about how young they were when they were having to navigate these things and they did live in a world that was telling them that homosexuality was terrible and should be avoided at all costs but like i think he got to a point where he realized that he had the option to like me and love me and he like took that on a little more and it's been weird since he died because you know i one of the chapters in the book is about my relationship to him and i am frank from my perspective and that is not always the most like laudatory of of lights to cast on him and i feel bad about that I got two really great pieces of of advice when my dad died. And one of them came from Mindy Kaling. Mindy Kaling said, you will be surprised by how much your relationship will continue to grow. And I think that I have been surprised by how much my relationship continued to grow. And part of that was putting something like that ch- chapter of my book out there. It underscores a delicacy in our relationship, if that makes any sense to you. I feel... Sh- Like I put something very sensitive out there and it continues to be sensitive because I am self-conscious that I let other people look at it. And I think that there is something beautiful about the fact that it continues to be sensitive. And I am not, don't have an ossified view of who he is or understanding of who he is. I understand that it's still something I need to be respectful of and, and careful about.
2: Yeah, I have to say in reading those chapters, it was very resonant for me to read such a complex relationship and one that was clearly still being worked through in your own mind. I remember reading that thinking, wow, I have not read enough about gay men talking about their relationships with their parents, specifically with their fathers, because it is complex. And I remember, I don't know if cathartic is the word, but I felt represented in a way in reading that chapter that I had not felt before. Oh, that's very sweet. You also talk at length in the book about your identity as a fat man. And just for clarity's sake, that is a word that you use. I just want to make sure that people are understanding. When did you first start to realize that the discrimination fat people endure is acutely heightened within the gay community?
3: Oh, well, I mean, lack of representation um, was one of the things at the very beginning. And in a world where people are saying, oh... All gay men are hotter than straight men. All gay men have perfect bodies. You do just sort of wonder how would I fit into this and what place is there for me? That said, (laughs) it wasn't until I actually entered a gay bar, I honestly kind of didn't think it would be that bad until I, I, like, actually got to gay bars and, like, online negotiation for sex with gay guys before I realized just how frank and upfront people would be at their distaste or revulsion for me. And, you know, it's not great, but I also think that that has made me have to be aware of the processes that go on in a guy's head when they come out. The sort of sense of what you're giving up and what you think you're getting it's made me think a whole lot more about that and the way that like the way that 15 year old hopes and dreams live in the heart and mind of every gay man. And like, I have to understand and appreciate it. I don't think I am the best architect for understanding what fat representation or inclusion looks like in, in queer spaces. I think I can be bound up by a lot of the negative constructions. But it's one of the reasons that I am so delighted by people, by like Todd Masterson or EJ Johnson or like Daniel Franzese, who, you know, first of all, was just, you know, the first the first time you saw sort of like a fat gay guy who was – not the joke, but who was, like, a wonderful person in a story. And, you know, when these people are, like, you know, like, have clothing lines or doing anything like that, I'm like, oh, it's magical that you've accessed those parts of gay that I imagined didn't have space for me. Mm. I
2: wanna ask about how this correlates to social media because I saw a post recently online from a very conventionally attractive cis white gay guy, muscles, pretty smile, the whole thing. And he had done one of those sexy photo shoots that people do for Instagram. And the caption that accompanied it was all about how all of his life he hasn't felt comfortable in his own skin. And in this moment, him being nearly naked online was such a vulnerable experience. And I wanted to both laugh and to cry at the same time, but I also questioned my own reaction since
3: that is his truth. What do you make of posts like this? I mean, the thing is, is like, yes, you do have to start out from a place of like, everyone is on their own journey. And I do think that there is a specific way that homophobia is built to make gay guys not comfortable with their bodies. And I think a lot of the things that all gay, like across the board, I think we are not having right or great relationships with our bodies. And I think a lot of us do self-destructive things with our bodies because of that. But I also think that so much the language of body positivity is being used by hot people to get more people to tell them how hot they are and to create sort of like a shawl of humility to place over the fact that you are saying essentially, look at how hot I am, please envy me and want to have sex with me. It Like, I'm very tired of it. Like, it, it does really annoy me. I understand where they're coming from. And I also have to understand that we're all following them. Like when when there are these moments of sort of like mass criticism of these people, it is because they're doing the thing that is getting us to follow them. And I think one of the beautiful things, you asked me earlier about what have I seen in gay culture and like so many of the things I've seen are really beautiful turns. Like I think gay men today are a lot better at looking at a gay man and seeing something beautiful than they were 10 years ago. And not just in a sexual way. Like, I do think that when I came on the scene, people expected that all that they could get out of another gay man, it was primarily sexual, maybe social. But the idea that we could have cultural relationships with each other, that like, the cola scola is a beautiful thing, even if you're not into Lutheran otters, um it, you know it is a journey and like i remember being at a show in brooklyn in 2013 and there being this audience of adorable little boys who were wearing fisherman's nets as shirts who were so excited to be watching gay men perform stand-up where for such a long time gay men wanted to watch kathy griffin do stand-up and if a gay guy got on stage, they were like, why is he on stage and not me? And I think we've been able to grow up about stuff like that. But I think when it comes to, like, the, the little stories of body positivity coming from hot people on Instagram, we have to understand our own complicity by following these people. But when they do get to that point of trying to create some sort of pity like oh isn't it sad that I look this hot but I don't feel like I look this hot like what you are saying is wouldn't it be terrible if I were like Guy Branum and I don't think that that story needs to be told quite so much I think you and your thick thick pecs can have an existence on their own without having to contemplate how much dangerous or, or more terrible it would be if you were like me I also don't necessarily need um, hilarious stories of your fat girl on the inside.
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: I do want to ask you something about that specifically with what we're talking about now, which is the sort of idea of it is who we are following. On December 30th, influencer Kyle Krieger posted a side-by-side photo of a gay doctor named Tyler Spillane, because on this podcast we name names, who had gotten his first shot of the vaccine only to then be seen snapping photos in Puerto Vallarta. Krieger intended the post as a call-out to highlight the hypocrisy at play. You, quote, tweeted that and added something that's stayed with me for weeks since. You said, quote, there are a lot of gay doctors and nurses who are responsibly quarantining until their second dose, and those gays don't have perfect abs and or are women, so you don't follow them on social media. We are responsible for our own democracy. Brilliant. Can you break down for me in detail sort of what you meant by that?
3: Um, what I meant was I follow those people too. I'm not behaving as though I am better than this. We follow those people for being hot and going to Mykonos. And then we're asking why they are continuing to be hot and go to Mykonos when being hot and going to Mykonos is like putting everyone's life in danger. Like it is like everyone's life, everyone's income Our world is falling apart. Please take nothing I'm saying as an implication that all of those people who went to Puerto Vallarta weren't terrible and irresponsible. But it's like so layered because I understand why they did it. And then I also understand on a deeper layer why they're doing it. Like there is a whole world of gay people whose life it is to maintain their perfect hotness in exchange for that week they get to be on an Atlantis cruise and that week they get to be in Puerto Vallarta and have sex with people who are having sex at the same grade level as them, you know? And I like, one of the things that was interesting to me about that sort of coming for those gay guys is that so much of the time it was hottish gay guys who have creative jobs in Los Angeles or New York talking shit about slightly hotter gay guys who have less actualizing careers who live in Kansas City or whatever, and sort of saying they're the wrong kind of hot and a little bit I'm the right kind of hot. And like, look, I know fucking people, like I remember my trainer when COVID started, it was like, he was like, what am I living for anymore? Like, this is, you know, that's his schedule of his year. That's what he's doing. And I think it is so, it is not a coincidence that it's all these fucking ripped gay nurses that we're calling out because they live in the middle of nowhere where there aren't that many other gay people who are maintaining the bodies that they are. They have a job that is extremely draining and doesn't provide the kind of, like, benefit that creative jobs do. I understand why they're like, give me this fucking week. I still think it's dumb, but I understand why they're doing it. And people who have been told their entire lives that there is so little out there for gay men that meth, steroids, all of those things are your last best hope for happiness I understand whether or not scared to add a virus on top of that, and part of me is reticent about being too judgmental, because I know that people keeping the party going when the party could kill you, like, is part of what kept my culture going over the past 30 years, And part of it, yes, was fighting with, with pharmaceutical companies and fighting with the community to make safe sex a greater reality, but also we didn't always understand what was making HIV and AIDS communicable. And and there was a lot of fear around it, all of that. But then, I'm talking a lot. And then on top of that is just the idea of, we are responsible for our own democracy, which in between me posting that and now has become so much clearer in a political sense. I am Generation X, and I think that Generation X so much believed that baby boomers and the American empire were so powerful that all we could really do was rant against it. And I feel like we have lionized ranting against things, institutions, for a while. I think that speech is an important part of American democracy and discourse and culture. But realizing just yelling at things is not enough. Like, we have to keep this shit going. If we're not keeping American democracy going, ain't nobody. If we're not keeping gay culture going, if we're not being smart about it, nobody's gonna do that for us. And I think that the problem with gay male culture is that what it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago, was people dipping their dick in to get their dick taken care of and then going back to their safe life where they weren't identified with gay stuff, and really taking a cafeteria approach to gay culture for a lot of people, and I think what we have to realize is, if we want a culture and a world that we can be proud of, we need to do a little bit more than that. Yes, follow your hot gay doctors. Why else are they working out that much? <laughs> also, you know, follow Reed Bryce, a trans gay stand up com- like a trans gay man who's a stand up comic see something a little bit outside of yourself, you know, like want more for this world than your dick being hard so that you don't get scared and confused after you come and your dick won't be hard for a couple of minutes and or seconds. You guys are very young. Um, <laughs> but you have to sort of like examine your life outside of just a hunt for um, more erections.
2: Well said. Let me ask you this. I think there's a reason why you went on for so long just now and on several different tangents in a good way, which is to say, I think it's because there are a lot of, there's a lot of emotions flying right now that, that deserve nuance, that deserve excavation, that deserve deeper conversations. And my sense is from what you said just now, it's that not enough of these conversations are being had. This idea that just hosting a side-by-side of some doctor in Puerto Vallarta and calling him out is not doing anything to advance the conversation farther or examine why he went there in the first place. Do you feel like, besides the conversation we're attempting to have now, are you seeing any articles or stories or groups of friends or comedy specials or, or anything that you think is attacking the bigger conversation that you're trying to have?
3: Um, I don't think so, because right now we're built for glib conversation. And I would say one of the sad things is that right now we can't be at a bar with eight of our friends yelling at each other. You know, like we're not able to have that kind of communication. Isn't this conversation infinitely different if you might look over and see one of those gay guys who was in Puerto Vallarta, who you know, or whatever. And I also think when it comes to Articles. There is a way that we have become more glib because people are scared of a trite criticism, making them look bad. And I think gay men are scared of these conversations. Like we like the simplicity of well waxed abs and more complex conversations we tend to shy away from a lot of the time. And I think it is partially rooted in this cafeteria approach of oh I don't want to have to deal with that and I also think because we are used to being a secret minority there is a way I talk about it in my book but in in Yiddish there's this idea of Shonda goyim. this other Jew is embarrassing us in front of the Gentiles uh-huh. and I, for gay men there is this fear of like who's this other faggot talking and what are going people going to think about me because of what he's saying the problem with looking and all of these shows is that they feel like they're having to do PR for gay men while representing our lives. And you kind of have to come to a point where you're like, I'm not scared of what people will think about me. Like at the end of the day, they need to understand that like, <laughs> we fucking the asshole and do lots of other things with assholes. And like, we're not gonna apologize for that or pretend it's not true anymore. Mm. You know, this makes me think a little bit about Drag Race
2: because one of the great things about that show consistently for me has been watching these 13 seasons and watching these entire cast of queer people come in every season, with unique experiences all their own and interacting with a workroom full of other queer people. And I feel like one of the things that that show has been able to facilitate is a lot of interpersonal conversations amongst queer people that Mm -hmm. go places that I had never before seen in scripted or reality because it was just a room that both felt safe but also had 13 queer people's stories within one room.
3: My former podcast co-host, Karen Tonkson, a very distinguished queer scholar at USC once said there were no real lesbians on television until Top Chef. And I think that like, yeah, it, it takes actual factual real gay people getting to talk to each other. And I think we do love to talk shit about Rue and her fracking. And, you know, Rue loves to fight some fights with people that he doesn't need to fight fights with. <laughs> the amount of representation of gay people, gay men, and in a couple of cases, women from different backgrounds. Like, you know, having seasons where you've got people who are like talking about their jail time and then these little boys who have only lived in a world with drag race and whose moms design their outfits for them. You know, like, I think it is beautiful to have all of that stuff in one place. I'm actually working on a, a pilot now for NBC, <laughs> like and the thing is, it's like I never imagined I would get to tell something that was my story, specifically not in that mainstream of sort of like a forum. It wouldn't have crossed my mind. My job was to write funny jokes for ladies. And fucking Sean Hayes and his producing partner, Todd Milner, were like, no, you do something that's you and we'll help you with that. And it was like you know, good fucking job. Like, good fucking job, Sean Hayes, that you are in the place that you are and you're trying to move the ball in that way. Wanda Sykes, who produced my talk show, like, there are stand-ups who have come out of the closet. Wanda Sykes is the only person of that level who talks about her fucking life in a real fucking way. And I think part of it needs to be us being less scared. Mm of being real. And there are good reasons that people are scared to be real. I am not denying that. I'm just saying the people who weren't scared to push some buttons, the people who weren't scared to transgress, and we need to realize that the people who took dangerous steps deserve some respect, even if they are not the most right or correct with the fights we're having now, because they got us where we are. Not saying we should tell them that they're 100% right about everything, but I'm saying, respect that grandma and grandpa might still be fighting a war from 30 years ago.
2: Mm. this makes me think we had Raja on from for the winner of season three of Drag Race earlier this season, and one thing that she said that I thought was really resonant was that at the end of the day, she respects RuPaul. And she mentioned, you know, there are some things that she disagrees with about Ru's opinions about certain things or how Ru acts about on certain issues, but at the end of the day, it's about showing respect to our elders, which is something I think it's it's very easy and trendy and it's very easy to have a viral tweet in which you shit on RuPaul because that's the popular thing to do. But it really begs the question of, is there a truth behind
3: that? And is that really, is it really, it's just easy, right? It's trite and makes you feel young, which is a thing that we prioritize. But one of the things is we are not great at having like forbears around us about having sort of cultural like ancestors because there's just a generation of men who were gone like we did not learn how to have like 60 year olds like the have you read the novel less Mm-mm. it won the pulitzer a couple of years ago it makes me mad that more gay guys haven't read it but it, like arthur Les, i think that's his name he says he's the first gay man to be middle-aged And it really is this sort of, like, adventure of people having to figure out, like, we all know what a gay 25-year-old does. What the fuck does a gay 45-year-old do? A lot of the time, continue to look pretty much like a gay 25-year-old, which is impressive and dazzling. But we also, you know, we have to understand that we have to have meaning beyond hotness. That does not mean we have to sacrifice hotness. Hotness is a very beautiful thing, and it's why we all got in the game. Hmm. Let me ask you something really quick. So I'm struck throughout this conversation. And you
2: mentioned earlier that when you were younger, you know, your dad had to grapple with the fact that you were an intellectual and sort of meeting you at that level. And in this conversation right now, I'm struck in talking to you by how smart you are. And I, I have a little bit, and this is my own shit to work through, but of feeling like I am not quite up to snuff with Guy Bradham. Even the novel, no, 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 but like, hear me out. But the novel you mentioned, it's like, you say that and I'm like, God, I should have read that. And I'm just wondering what it's like from your perspective to how do you interact with people I don't wanna, it's, that are not as intellectually adept as you are without making people feel stupid. And,
3: and, and I wanna say by no point in this conversation have you made me feel stupid. Um. Wow, it's a lot of things. First of all, like, <laughs> Like I can be very reproachful. It is an easy tactic to take. And again, it is easy in the way that those RuPaul jokes can be easy of just sort of being like, don't you know? And that's hard. It's not a good thing. I'm terribly, terribly condescending and I have to work on that and deal with the fact that it's not my goal, but sometimes I can seem that way to people. I didn't go into a respectable field. And I like... I like being in a disrespectful field. I like that the job and professional world I have chosen is more people taking stabs than it is people trying super hard to be right. And I think that that part is fun and good. Like at the end of the day, my job is jokes and like that makes me more comfortable, and I hope that it makes people around me more comfortable.
2: So I do want to touch on gaze over COVID. Uh-huh. I want to start by contextualizing. This is an Instagram account that was created by an anonymous person or group several months ago that posts photos and pictures of gay men not complying with stay-at-home orders, social distancing, and or mask-wearing protocols. It regularly tags the men featured whose comments then get barraged with call-outs. As of this conversation, the account has amassed over 125,000 followers and has been both lauded and criticized for its efforts. So, with that said, as is becoming the great debate in, in the gay culture at the moment, where do you stand on the Gays Over COVID conversation?
3: I follow Gays Over COVID. And part of the reason I follow Gays Over COVID is because they are constantly posting photos of hot gay guys doing stuff on beaches. And like, it is a complex emotional situation of like schadenfreude, I don't know, is it schadenfreude? You're just sort of like, you're glad that they're getting called out. You're horrified that these people live this life where they're not like, they're not thinking about the COVID of it all. And I think part of it is about, it's a really interesting examination of why we Instagram, because you look at these people and you're like, can their life really be just being hot and sexy, like a normal, just sort of like Instagram. You're just like, oh, there's hot and they work out and they have sex and then they f- f- frolic by beaches. And it's why it's always fun when somebody gets called out for like Photoshopping themselves next to a canoe or something <laughs> like that. Because you're like, it's not real. And I think the added joy of Gaze Over COVID is that you're looking at people who are behaving as though COVID isn't real. And you're sort of like, it's the weird, like, I wish I could go to Mexico. I would never go to Mexico because I'm being responsible. But who are these fuckers who get to go to Mexico and must they be necessarily dumb and evil because they are hot and having the fun that I can't have? Mm -hmm. Like, at the end of the day, let us not forget they're dumb. <laughs> like they're dumb and terrible for doing what they do. But I also think why it satisfies us is something worth asking some questions about.
2: One of the interesting things about the case over covid story from my perspective is watching it get picked up by straight media. Yeah. For instance, NBC News just did a big story about it and Ryan, I believe you sent it to me and they called it in their coverage a gay civil war and (laughs) yeah, LOL. And I think that's one of the interesting components about this is that what felt like a sort of in conversation within the LGBTQ plus community, actually I'm not even sure how much it really was outside of gay men, but what felt like a contained conversation kind of spilled over into straight media in which gay people are cast as the villains. And obviously as anyone listening probably knows, the implications of that trip to Mexico are more far-reaching than just themselves. You know, they have public health implications on their friends and family and strangers alike. What are your thoughts on watching Gaze Over COVID obtaining clout in its own right, and as a result, sort of the specificity of the intent getting a little muddied?
3: Also, it's not just a conversation among gay men. It's a conversation among gay men and that one woman who is at every one of those gatherings. (laughs) Yeah, no, justice for her, for sure. Who are also, like, the most important bedrock of our culture and community are the chubby straight girl who's, like, at the cock at 3 a.m. You know, like, those women have to deal with so much, and I respect them so much. But, yeah, it is a little strange that this is a conversation, it's an inside-the-house conversation that involves nuance and a lot of sort of... Irony, like mm. the the part of it that is lost is and not irony, camp that part of this requires allowing for disparate ideas to be around each other and enjoy that tension, that frission, as opposed to sort of just slicing through it. And, and I worry about anything where the straight people are clucking their tongues about the gays want to fuck too much, and that's a public health concern because. You know these issues have come up before. Yeah, and I just want to add: there are
2: people, a lot of Rue girls that I've been calling out, for instance, that are in Puerto Vallarta that I think are fucking idiots for going, and I still love them as people. I think right. one of the things that have come out of this is this idea that these people are our enemies, and I don't think that's the case. I think you can love people and also think that they make stupid decisions.
3: Well, and that's part of it. That is like been so. Real is just sort of knowing people who are part of that world and loving and appreciating them. And like, I was talking about my trainer. I know he's fucking miserable. You know, like I have an ex and I'm sort of like, how many drugs is he doing in his home right now because he can't go like have the fun that is part of his life? And you know. That's what family is about, is being able to be mad at people because you love them. Yeah, And I think that, that is really lost when we take this conversation elsewhere. Yes.
2: I'm going to throw now to Ryan, who has a question for you.
3: Hey, Guy. So you
0: wrote an op-ed for the New York Times in which you lament your gay voice, as in the actual sound that's created by the vibrations of your vocal cords. You also talk about why we're conditioned to hate both our gayness and the gayness of others. You say, gay art isn't just works from an underrepresented community. It's voices that were trained to hide and be silent, but were resolute enough to make noise despite the danger. They didn't know me, but they did it for me. This really stuck with me, and not just the part about hating my voice, but this idea that we stand on the shoulders or the voices of the gay men or queer people who came before us. And that in our own act of creation or whatever it is we put out into the world, we become the foundation for the next group of gay men to stand upon. So I guess I'm curious how you view your gay voice thus far, what you think its impact has been, or if there are things you really hope to accomplish with it that you either haven't yet or are in the process of.
3: Well, I don't feel old enough to be like, oh, well, this is my contribution. But here's the answer. Here's the real answer. Okay. I was at SF Sketch Fest, and I had an interaction with a closeted gay standup that just sort of made me feel uncomfortable and annoyed. And then off of that, I had an interaction with a gay standup who's older than I am, who was not helpful to me at the beginning of my career because he did not want to have sex with me. He's not that successful in America, he is very successful in England. Uh, his name is Scott Capurro. I will just say who it is. It's Scott Capurro. Do it. And like Scott Capurro is so, so funny and I adore him. He in no way acknowledged me or dealt with me because he didn't want to have sex with me when I was starting out. So I had these two interactions and then I was, at, I was in a group of people who were talking and there was a well-respected improviser and actor who had come out of the closet recently and a couple of other gay people. And they were having an argument about whether the man who was making s'mores for us was gay or not. And he was super adorable and had like a blonde top knot. This was years ago when a top knot was a good thing. And he was just like, as cute as the day is long. And we were having this conversation about the cute boy who was there. And I was sort of in my head about these interactions with sort of the various polls of gay performers who... I feel uncomfortable with. And so I decided that I was going to deal with this moment by being the brave one who wasn't scared, splashing over and striking up a conversation with the gentleman who was making s'mores. And before I could get out a word to the gentleman who was making s'mores, he said, guy, Branham, started telling me about what it meant to watch me in his mom's room uh, on Chelsea Lately when he was still back in Little Rock. And... It was just that moment of, this is a thing that I get that these other people who also are gay artists and performers and who have done things and they get benefits. But like, this is for me that I get to have people who, and you know, also like, what a wonderful thing it is that this adorable boy with the blonde topknot saw the fat, sweaty, bald Jew and was able to see something that was about him, or related to him. And just sort of having those moments is really, really lovely. I will say that, that is a benefit of my gay voice. And I think the other thing that is really nice is to be able to look at the little boys, and girls, and they who came after me, who are having lovely moments, who are having beautiful things happen for them and to be so happy that their lights are shining and to not feel like I am an over the hill person whose best days are behind them and who doesn't get to, Hey, I got a fucking, I got a pilot at NBC. I'm doing fine. But also fucking Boeing, fucking Matt Rogers, fucking Dave Mazzoni, like just a whole world and range of people who I know that they know that what they are doing is possible in a little way, among other things because of me. And I also know that if I ever get drunk and like wave my finger in their face about what they owe me or what they should be doing, they're gonna at least listen. <laughs> like oh, it's, I feel I feel bad about that. There are ways that I feel bad about the pushy ant of stand-up comedy I have been but also we have to fucking maintain a culture. We have to, like, we have to fucking do a thing. Everybody's eyes need to be open. Everybody needs to be helping everybody out. And if somebody isn't helping everybody out, I'm going to fucking tell you, pull your weight. You know, the only reason straight boys have stopped saying faggot constantly on stage is because enough of us told them that's not okay. And I'm as proud of that as I am proud of Casey Lai or, you know, any other gay comic out there. I am proud of all the straight little children who have learned not to be terrible because we're gonna talk back. Those are the things that that I'm proud of. And there are ways, Ryan, that I feel bad about the amount of time I have wasted, had to waste my voice on telling people don't do that, but I am also exquisitely proud of what the results have been.
2: Mm. I want to wrap up with a few last questions. I want to talk about gay Twitter. Okay. Twitter did not exist for the three of us when we were younger. And I'm sort of fascinated by the difference between gay Twitter and Instagram. I don't even know if it's really called gay Instagram. I think Instagram is a little bit less with title. But I have an acquaintance who is quite popular on Instagram. And I know I said we name names, but I can't name them. But he recently joined Twitter. And he has had a really rough go in terms really? of people criticizing posts of his that don't translate the same on the bird app. Basically he is very viral on platforms like TikTok and Instagram. And that same humor that he deploys that goes very big on those apps. When brought over to gay Twitter, he is ridiculed. And I mean, he is ridiculed and the biggest criticism that he's getting is basically you are just a hot person. You are not a funny person. And all of the affirmation you've got about being funny is because you are hot. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the difference between
3: Instagram and Twitter specifically for gay people, specifically for gay men. Well, it's weird because at the very basis, like at the very base of things, I think Twitter is about your insides and Instagram is about your outsides. And I think that that affects things. I also, to me, there is something so fascinating about the fact that there are dicks on Twitter. Like, Mm -hmm. for me, there's something really honest about the fact that, like, Instagram is only this sort of, like, sanitized and safe version of aesthetics and sexuality. And, like, Twitter has space for, you know, fucking and things being a little bit raw. Also, like... (sighs) Twitter, like, but also Twitter is so built on people having the freedom to just, like, claw at everyone. I think that that's really bad. It makes us think that the thing that is valuable about us is our claws. And I know for such a long time, I also have to remember when I was young, I felt like the only thing I had was my claws. Lashing out at people in what seemed to me positions of power meant a lot to me. And it's hard now to realize, like, sometimes somebody will think that they are lashing out at someone who in a position of power, who is a blue check, who has 15,000 followers and, you know, lives with three roommates or something like that. I mean, a lot of that stuff on TikTok, a lot of that stuff is silly and dumb. And I respect it, but also understand people calling you out for not being particularly dangerous. Like, It's nice to see some risk involved. And the thing is, it's like being hot and showing your hotness is a way of avoiding risk. Mm. And I am always impressed by people who add an element of real risk to the stuff that they do like that. There was one Instagrammer. He was really, really great. He would post like thirst trappy photos of himself and then like paragraph long reads Of the gay men who were consuming it for like the the self hatred that was motivating you to be having this experience. And he kept showing pubes or more, and Instagram kept taking away his Instagram account. And so I think, you know, that's pushing at the boundaries of the medium, and I respect that. Totally. You know, I keep thinking there's all these conversations. You have to tell me your friend's name. You have to tell me privately, you have to tell me your friend's name. Yeah, we'll just bleep it. His name is. Okay. And if you want to see someone getting
2: dragged, just take a look at his posts. But it's interesting that you mentioned this because I've been thinking, you know, I'm watching The View and all of my morning talk shows. And there's all these conversations about the censorship happening on Twitter right now. But to your point, it's like I can get my AOC tweet followed by two guys fucking all in a single scroll. And so to me, it's like this really is an app that allows for
3: freedom of expression in contrast to Instagram. Just one more thing I want to say we maybe need to do more work to call out those humorous, humorless bitches. Like when there are people who are too much just talking shit um, about other people trying to have a good time, maybe it's important that we call scolds, scolds. I, I can be a scold sometime. I can too. So
2: my last question, what is one of your favorite film performances that is not gay in any way, but is incredibly gay in every way?
3: I mean, you asked me this question, you put me on the spot, and I, like, Madeline Kahn in Blazing Saddles is one of those things that, in, in torturing a heterosexual performance, creates one of the gayest things of all time. Like, it's so good, at, like, it, it's just so compelling, I, I never watch it and don't laugh. Like, I I never watch it and don't laugh. And I would also like to say, okay, one of the true moments of what are these children doing that like really got to me was when Call Me By Your Name came out, there were younger gays who sort of bristled at it because they didn't see it as involving gay culture being relevant to gay culture. It had gay sex, but did it have gay culture? And to me, somebody who had grown up on Merchant Ivory films this thing that was written by James Ivory that was so steeped in sort of like classical Roman gay art, that was ridiculous. But I realized then that you guys hadn't been exposed to the Merchant Ivory movies of the 1980s. Maggie Smith's performance in A Room with a View. Have either of you seen A Room with a View? No. Okay. It's so good. A Room with a View is basically E.M. Forster writing his gay spin on Pride and Prejudice. But there is an older maiden aunt who is judging this butt hungry young girl on the continent who's just like judging her and clicking her tongue at her the whole way. And in the end is the one person who tells her, yes, give up your life and go get the the dick that you want. Like that dick is as meaningful as anything else this world can have for you here. Maggie Smith, it's like the first of Maggie Smith's I'm an old lady performances. And we've benefited from 40 years of those. Mm. But like, go watch Professor McGonagall be jealous of somebody else's sexual life and then urge that little girl to go get her some. It's so fun. And it's so funny. It's so funny. I will definitely be checking that out. Guy, thank you
2: so much. Before I let you go... I want to ask you how did this conversation go for you from your perspective?
3: It was really really fun. Thank you so much for having me. When you asked me to do it, I was ex- I was excited and particularly excited that you wanted to talk about gays over covid because it is something that need I can't express how I feel about that in a couple of tweets. And I am and we're in a place right now where so much of my social life is Tweets or like having a conversation with one person. And like being able to to do this was really fun and also made me work out some thoughts that I haven't been thinking all the way because they're all going on in my own head. Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Evan, will you shut up? Shut the fuck up, Evan! Shut Up,
2: Evan is produced by Matt Storm, with associate production by Ryan Killian Krause, and social media by Sean Ross. An extra special thank you to our Patreon supporters, without whom none of this would be
0: possible.